So as we do on the first Sunday of every month, today we celebrate communion together. But have you ever thought about why God would command us to practice communion regularly? I mean, God's really smart, so he probably has several reasons for why he would do that, but certainly at least one of those reasons is that the visual presentation of the bread and the wine or the bread and the juice serves as a personal reminder of the necessity of blood atonement, namely the blood of Jesus spilled for the salvation of souls and for the forgiveness of sins. The simple, clear, visual presentation serves not only as a reminder, a personal reminder for the church, but it also serves as a public witness to the world that every person needs their sins forgiven. Similarly, with baptism, the visual imagery of a person going under the water and being raised to new life, even as we have just sung, is a simple, and clear visual witness to the reality of the resurrection of Jesus and of the corresponding work of God in the heart of a believer. In communion and in baptism, the simple reality of of what we are seeing with our eyes is communicating something very, very powerful. Seeing the truth visually demonstrated makes it that much harder to dismiss. Now, the way today's passage is written, it serves almost like a a, a mental snapshot, like, like a visual picture of what the church was facing. And from, from this moment on, everything is changing for the church. Our passage is Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. You'll remember last week that the apostles were being burdened by the weight of all the ministry that needed to happen, so they went to the people and said, pick from among yourselves seven men, and they did. The first name on that list was Stephen. So then, Hear the word of God this morning as we pick up in verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia, they rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men 
who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And against this dark backdrop, take this mental snapshot. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So Lord, as as we consider the hostility toward the gospel message that happened right out of the gate, I pray that you would do a mighty work in us. Increase our confidence in you to accomplish your purposes in and through even some of the darkest and hardest most difficult circumstances. Let into your people breathe spirit-wrought joy, I ask, through the power of the Spirit and in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we come to the first major transition in the book of Acts. At the end of chapter 6, here in verse 7, There is a summary of the impact of the gospel in the temple and in Jerusalem, which reads, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So today's passage introduces the event that that launched the gospel outward outward from Jerusalem and into Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. That event is the martyrdom of Stephen. Over the next few weeks, we will look at Stephen's response to those who were opposed to his gospel message. And this scene culminates in his death by stoning. As Luke, as Luke moves on in the story from there, we learn that a young man named Saul from Tarsus approved of Stephen's execution. And we learn that there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. So this is where we're going to be camped out for a few weeks. Notice the progression. The apostles, you will remember, were first threatened for sharing the truth about Jesus. Then Peter and John were severely beaten because they would not stop sharing about Jesus. Now Stephen will be killed because he was faithfully sharing the good news about Jesus. 
The stoning of Stephen was the spark that set the persecution of the church ablaze in Jerusalem, forcing the gospel outward. So, so realize fr- freshly this morning, if you haven't thought about it in a while, God is able to take the most wicked of circumstances and turn it and use it for the greatest good, just like the cross. A similar thing is happening here with the execution of Stephen. So here's the essence of what we see modeled in Stephen's witness, uh, stating it as simply as possible. Because one of the ways that I want to serve you this morning is to, to take these dramatic scenes for Max and help us to think about, well, yeah, but what does that look like at work tomorrow morning or when I'm talking to my neighbor uh, across the driveway? So here's the main point. Sharing Jesus includes talking about Jesus and acting like Jesus while depending on the spirit of Jesus. And we see every one of those elements on display in this brief scene with Stephen. So this morning, we'll look at the fact that that Stephen was full of grace and power in verses 8 through 10, that he was facing strong opposition in verses 11 through 14, specifically from false accusation, and then finally in 15, we'll, we'll pause there for a moment and just exult in the reality that his face was like the face of an angel despite his circumstances. Let's uh, then begin with our first section. Verse 8, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Stephen's not an apostle, so this is extraordinary and awesome. Listen to the way that Luke describes Stephen just over the course of of a few verses here. He was one of seven men described as possessing a good reputation who was full of the Spirit and filled with wisdom, chapter 6 and verse 3. He was listed first among the seven. He was personally described as a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 6 and verse 5. Oh, that God would describe us in similar terms, or that our brothers and sisters would see that in us. He is a man full of grace and power, as we just heard from verse 8. As others disputed with him, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. Verse 10. While essentially he's on trial, literally with his life hanging in the balance. As others publicly slandered him to the people who had the authority to execute him. Luke says that all those around him were were staring at him. And they all noticed that he had the face of an angel, despite these 
circumstances. It's always interesting to hear how someone else describes you. There's always a moment of of hesitation if somebody comes up to you and says, Hey, I ran into somebody that you know, and we were just talking about you. You're always thinking, Who was it? And I wonder what that conversation looked like, right? Maybe there's a few surprises there. I wonder if Stephen would have been surprised by how Luke described him. I mean, he's presumably a normal person. He wasn't an apostle who also happened to be normal guys. He was just a member of a new church community who was well thought of by others. That could be any number of you. What I love, though, is that Luke accentuates characteristics of Stephen that were also distinctive traits of his Lord. He was full of grace and power and wisdom and most notably the Holy Spirit. And I think that is largely Luke's point. He was reflecting the character of his Lord. Now, as much as I want to know what the signs and wonders were that Stephen was doing, because that would be thrilling to behold, the more important point here is that as a follower of Jesus, Stephen was talking about Jesus and he was acting like Jesus filled with the Holy Spirit. And and that can be true of every single one of us. He served and he led. He was full of grace and of power. The witness of the church goes forth even against strong opposition when, when very normal people like you and like me, filled with the Holy Spirit, when we both talk about Jesus and when we act like Jesus. This is the simple and the clear picture we see in this, in this snapshot of the early church focus on the spirit-filled witness of just one man. Now, to be clear, as it relates to us, you don't have to be performing great signs and wonders to be acting like Jesus. As awesome as that would be, and as hopeful as we are that God will do whatever God wants to do among his people and through his people. But there are a lot of ways to act like Jesus, which is perhaps the greatest way that we honor him. When we are thoughtful like Jesus or gentle like Jesus or strong like Jesus or generous or compassionate or perceptive or bold like Jesus, when we provide for those in need like our Lord did, or when we defend the weak like Jesus did, when we pursue others in love just like Jesus did, or when we trust in the Father despite our circumstances, 
like Jesus did, or any time for that matter, that we obey our Father in heaven through the power of the Holy Spirit, then we are acting just like Jesus, our Lord. Further, you don't have to be in a, in a, in a massive public environment that's hostile defending the faith of Jesus. What you do need to be doing is to simply be talking about Jesus. Anytime we are in the presence of others and we simply acknowledge the creative power of Jesus, look at that sunset. Good work, Lord. Well done. You're brilliant. Incredible. Or, or we just thank Jesus for his provision. Or anytime we just ask Jesus to help us, no matter where we are, or invite people to growth group or to church to be with others in, in the presence of Jesus. Presumably you have to communicate somehow in order to do that. Or when we rejoice in the wisdom of Jesus out loud or express our allegiance to Jesus alone. Or even if we just ask a question about Jesus sometimes. Or we might challenge another's view about Jesus, or we point, point people to the saving work of Jesus, anytime we are seeking to be led by the Holy Spirit and we simply witness to the person and work of Jesus in any way, we are talking about Jesus and that is a witness to the world. This is the simple and clear and powerful picture we see in Acts describing the church's witness. Sharing Jesus includes talking about Jesus and acting like Jesus while we depend on the Spirit of Jesus. And we can do that every single day. Now, as it relates to the opposition that Stephen was facing. We, we learned in verses 9 and 10 that a multi-ethnic group of people argued with Stephen about what he was proclaiming about Jesus. This group was from a synagogue called the Freedmen because they were primarily made up of free Jewish slaves. It could have been one synagogue, it could have been a couple that were associated together, maybe multiple, because there's certainly different geographical regions mentioned here. But when this group could not stand against the wisdom Stephen displayed, or they couldn't stand against the spirit in which Stephen trusted, who happens to be omniscient and all-powerful, they therefore reverted to other tactics. It would have been far better for them to have pressed further into the claims of Stephen since his arguments were better than theirs. It would have been far better for them, especially since this is a religious discussion, for them to press in and say, wait a minute, what are you saying? But sadly, they resigned to the despicable practice of getting others to offer false testimony against Stephen. That is, to lie 
about what he was actually saying. So, so realize this, because we've talked about this already multiple times as we've walked through Acts. Anytime you talk about Jesus, it's likely that you will experience some opposition to that witness. You don't have to be screaming at someone about the fires of hell. You might just say, I think a man is a man, and a woman is a woman. Or, I think a man and a woman should be married to one another. It could be as simple as that. And you could be labeled as a bigot. You could have your words twisted, as is the case here. And they could say, you hate all these various people. It will happen. So we need to be thinking as we're walking through these passages and we're talking about it in a very simple and clear way about whether or not we are prepared for that opposition. Because if we are filled with the Spirit of God, as Jesus said in Luke 21.15, don't meditate on what you're going to say when that time comes, which is kind of an interesting thing for Jesus to say. He's basically saying, don't worry about it. Don't think about it. I will give you words when that time comes, because you can't always prepare for when that will be. But what we need to do is be willing to do two things. Talk about Jesus and act like Jesus while we're filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 11. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. Mob tactics were in play in the first few days of the church. It's not just a 21st century social media phenomenon, right? This is what you do when you don't like what's being said. If you can't defeat the argument... You lie about it or become hostile and try to stir up as many people as possible to witness against it. They set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place. Probably an exaggeration, right? (laughs) Never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth, this is the issue. It's Jesus. That's what the issue always is. He will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Now, from this context, it appears that there are two primary issues that were at stake. They falsely accused Stephen about what he was declaring about the temple, that is the holy place, and what he was proclaiming about the law. Of course, the real issue is what Stephen was proclaiming about Jesus related to these two ideas. But for those of us who love the gospel, the question comes up, why would anybody oppose it? Why would this group from this synagogue called the freedmen Why would they want to continue to submit to the further restrictions of the temple? Further, why would they want to resubmit themselves to the law and be enslaved by it? How ironic is that, given the name of their synagogue? 
when the gospel is available through Jesus. Why? Do you feel the tension of that dilemma? I think the sad reality is that moralism, being able to keep a list of what we were supposed to do and not do, is more comforting for people than the true freedom that the gospel offers. Whether or not you belong to the synagogue of the freedmen or not. What was Stephen arguing? As it relates to the temple, they they twisted the words of Stephen and more importantly Jesus by saying that he would destroy the temple. But what Jesus actually said was destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And John wanted to make sure this was perfectly clear. So John says in chapter 2 and verse 19 of his gospel, the temple that he was talking about was his body. And yet, this lie persisted. Of course, Jesus did not destroy the temple. The temple was not destroyed until 70 AD. Rather, Jesus did something that may have been even more offensive to those who were disputing with Stephen. Jesus rendered the temple utterly obsolete. Upon the cross, after Jesus cried and breathed his last, the curtain in the temple was completely torn in two from top to bottom. Instantaneously, access to God was made available 24-7, provided by the ultimate high priest through the power of the Holy Spirit. Think about what a miracle this would have been. You had to come to the temple to meet with God. Only one person, and that person only once a year after elaborate cleansing, was actually, actually allowed to be in the presence of God, representing the people. And after the death and resurrection of Jesus, now you, me, all y'all, can now be in the presence of God by faith in an instant because of what Jesus has accomplished and through the person and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Amazing. Second, as it relates to the law, Jesus certainly did not come to abolish the law. He made that clear. But he didn't come to change the law either. Rather, Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law. With respect to the customs of Moses, I think Jesus likely would have said, do not accuse me of changing the customs of Moses. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you will not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? In other words, Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of everything that Moses wrote about. You know who would be excited to see my day? Moses. He'd be the most joyful person here because he understood what he was writing. 
Now, while Jesus certainly did not come to abolish the law, he did come to fulfill the law on our behalf. Those disputing with Stephen would have been most concerned about the law as it relates to temple sacrifices, since by them each year, this is how the people were symbolically made clean. Without the symbolic sacrifice, you have no hope of having your sins forgiven by God. Praise God this morning that we are celebrating this sacrifice. Praise God this morning that we are celebrating the act of the one true and perfect sacrifice once for all. The reality is that what Jesus did didn't merely change the customs of Moses. What Jesus did changed everything. But how did he do it? How did he accomplish our atonement? Hebrews 10, 11 through 14. And every priest stands daily at his service. Do you know what that means? It means there's no, there was no chair in the temple because the priest's duties had to occur continuously. Because the people continuously needed forgiveness for their sins. They only ever stood as they ministered in the temple. Because their work was never, ever done. Offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, that's the point of the author of Hebrews, which can never take away sins. They needed to do it symbolically, but... But how futile to realize that all of this effort, sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, the temple had to be the bloodiest place on earth. And yet, the blood had no power to truly atone for sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. He's not standing in the presence of God. He accomplished the work that God gave him to do flawlessly. And now, sin is truly atoned for. He's waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Don't you love, don't you love the end of Verse 7, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. These are the ones who were in Jerusalem. These are the ones who were ministering in the temple. These are the ones who day after day after day after day are offering sacrifices. And they say, what did you just say? Jesus died once for all? His sacrifice actually forgives sin? My work is over? Praise be to his name. This is what we've been longing for. This is what we've been been pointing towards for our whole lives. Every moment of every day of ministry. And now it's over once for all. Praise be to Jesus. His is the only sacrifice that can truly take away sins. One sacrifice for all time. 
one sacrifice for all people who place their faith in Jesus. And my great hope is that you know that this morning. If you don't, I would beg you to put your faith in Jesus, to receive the work that he's done on your behalf. You have no other hope to have your sins atoned for except by the perfect blood of Jesus Christ, the great high priest. Oh, that that the Jews, they were Jews who were disputing with Stephen. I wish they would have seen this. But as we'll see in the coming weeks, though Jesus came to his own people, his own people did not receive him. Neither would they receive a faithful testimony about him. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So one of our traditions as a family is that on my son Max's birthday, we, we always go to Wasabi so that we can have dinner together. Part of it's because they can seat 10 at one time, and that's easier for, <laughs> for us. But Wasabi has a, a few funny traditions. That when it's your birthday, they, they play this ridiculous drum cadence so that they can sing happy birthday to you. So they'll put a chef's hat on you. But But as it relates to our purposes this morning, the other thing that they do is they take a Polaroid photo of your group. So we've done this for eight years or so. So we have eight Polaroid photos of our family about the same time of the year in January around Max's birthday. Now, if you're under 40, uh, this is a Polaroid (laughs) photo. At one point, this was cutting-edge technology. Although the, the editing software on these is not that great. If the contrast is too dark, you just kind of go like this as you hold it to the light, right? And that's all you can do. But the point as it relates to our passage is that the, the various Polaroids that we have of our family, they're a snapshot in time, and they show you the reality of what things look like for a moment at that time. Right? It's always amazing to see how much older everyone looks, except for Christy, of course, who's perpetually 36, as, as our family knows. All right, my love. But I, th- I think the way that Luke writes this brief account is designed to be a snapshot, a, a visual picture of what things look like in church history for a moment in time before everything changed. That snapshot is the picture of the darkness of the council surrounded by Stephen opposing him and his face glowing with the reflected glory of God at peace with joy entirely trusting his Lord. We know that every decisive, redemptive action in history was accomplished by Jesus himself. But the key factor in terms of the Great Commission that catapulted the gospel to the ends of the earth by way of Judea and Samaria 
In the narrowest sense, that spark, that key event, was the faithful witness and subsequent martyrdom of a very normal man named Stephen who was filled with the Holy Spirit. And therefore, like his Lord, ministered with grace and with power. So confident was Stephen in his sovereign king reigning from heaven that his face, even in the presence of hostile, life-threatening opposition, just shone like an angel's. His face, the face of an innocent martyr about to be brutally stoned after he faithfully witnesses about Jesus, is a snapshot from church history that I think Luke wants us to have vivid in our minds and to keep it there forever.